Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, Episode 5. of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon, and today we're going to be talking about focus versus opportunity. And these aren't necessarily opposite ends of the spectrum all the time, but for our purposes today, I want to discuss the how they can fight against each other, because we'll often hear entrepreneurs talk about having to be nimble and having to be able to take advantage of opportunities And in my experience, that is often an excuse for a lack of focus. So that's what we're going to explore today is focus versus opportunity or opportunity versus focus. Now, I make my living every day helping companies develop strategies, strategies for growth, strategies for turnaround, strategies for succession. And then I go back and I I work with them on actually executing those strategies. So it's important to me personally uh, because it's what I do for a living, to talk about the role of strategy in uh, in opportunity. Like, how, how does this whole idea of strategy versus opportunity um, work itself out? And there are, you know, there, there, there are people who have run very, very successful companies, much larger than mine, uh, who will say, you don't do any planning whatsoever. The whole idea, the whole notion of planning is going to lock your company into being less than it could be. And obviously, I disagree with that. I think that even the people who say they don't do any planning actually are very, very focused on sticking to one thing. And that the group that comes to mind um, most readily uh, are the guys who developed Ruby on Rails and um, then they went in to do base camp, and the name of the company is escaping me at the moment. Um, something signals. But anyway, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But these guys basically said, uh, we, don't, we don't plan. The whole idea of planning, you should not have a business plan. But if you look at their business practices, they're very, very disciplined in their product development to the extent that they, they actually went in a few months ago and said, we're not going to develop uh, any more products. We're going to actually, the products that we have developed, we're going to continue to service those, and we'll have a little bit of a team over here that does that. Um, but we're going to stick with our main product, which is Basecamp. And so even the folks who say that they don't do a lot of planning um, actually are very disciplined about their planning process. So the role of strategy, uh, where it comes... The, the idea that you shouldn't plan often has to do with, well, if you plan, you're not going to be able to be nimble enough to take advantage of opportunities. You're going to lock yourself into this mode of just going in this certain direction. And if you if you don't plan, then you'll be able to take advantage of all those opportunities. Well, it's it's been my experience, and I really think that this is true all over the place, no matter what your situation or scenario, that what you should really be doing is deciding where the opportunities are. If you're just kind of wandering around out there, running your company, doing the day-to-day stuff, and you're looking for the next opportunity, 
then your company's probably going not not going to be a great performer. The best companies sit down and they decide where the opportunities are in their market or where the opportunities are in their product space or where the opportunities are in the industry that they happen to be involved in. And there's a couple different ways that you can do this. You know, it basically all comes down to brainstorming. But you have to brainstorm with some actual data behind you. You have to know what you're talking about. So if you're not an industry expert, it's going to be hard for you to identify opportunities in the industry. But you could bring in an industry expert who would help you identify what those opportunities are. One of the most common forms of brainstorming in this area is SWOT analysis. So SWOT, um, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And you kind of divide these, you know, page into four quadrants and you talk about strengths you know what are we good at you talk about weaknesses what are we not good at you talk about opportunities where do we see things that we could be taking advantage of and threats what are the things that could sink us and then you, you also tend to classify all of these areas whether it's a strength weakness an opportunity or threat you classify it in terms of whether it's internal or external so an internal threat might be that uh, you know our ceo is about ready to retire and you know, for a company like Apple, that's a pretty big deal to lose the visionary who's driving your company all the time. And that, so the threat is we, we won't be able to um, we won't be able to replace him, or the market is going to respond poorly to whomever we replace him with. External threats are usually a little bit easier to identify. They could be um, competitors in your market space. If there's a national competitor. And, and you're just a local or regional player, and they decide they're going to move into your market, then that could be a serious threat to you. So SWOT analysis, I mean, I've seen people get really, really geeked up about SWOT analysis and kind of take it to an extreme. But I, I guess my, my tendency would be to just say, hey, we're going to brainstorm, and here's some structure for brainstorming. Because sometimes if you just say, hey, Let's sit down and, and talk about where the opportunities are in our business. It's often hard for people to play in a sandbox that doesn't have any edges. So SWOT analysis is a nice thing that gives you some of those edges. By the time you, you finish talking about strengths and weaknesses for 20 or 30 minutes, by the time you get to opportunities, a lot of those strengths will develop into opportunities. And sometimes the weaknesses will really develop into opportunities. If you're weak in a core competency of your business, then shoring up that weakness can be a, a serious opportunity to grow the business. So SWOT is one way to do it. The, the other thing that I'll say is that you have to develop creative ways to take advantage of what those opportunities are. So the whole idea of strategy is we decide, we, de we decide where the opportunities are. We take a look at the landscape using all the things that we know and we decide where the opportunities are. And then, but just knowing where the opportunity is is not enough. It's a big deal. Everybody, you know, okay, so you did some nice homework. You went on a company retreat. You got a bunch of flip charts that you came back with that show us where this industry is going and how we could be a part of it. The next thing you have to do is develop creative ways to take advantage of those opportunities. So just knowing that there's a, a new... Uh, delivery method for the technology that you produce is not enough. You have to come up with a way to take advantage of that delivery method. And you have to do it you know, better or faster or earlier than the competition. So th there, there could be 
a hundred different ways that you could take advantage of that opportunity. You have to sit down and decide which is the best one. The next thing, so so you've identified an opportunity, big deal. Okay, what? But now, no, no, no. It's not such. It is. It really is a big deal because we've developed you know this great way to take advantage of this opportunity. Okay. The next question is, how's that going to impact your business? Because if it's just going to be a cool thing that you can hang on your resume, or a cool thing that you can trumpet to your customers, and it's not really going to affect your business performance, then okay, that's fine, that's cool, um, but you know it actually could hurt the business. If it's not helping the business, it is actually hurting the business because we're going to be using resources to take advantage of this opportunity. It's not going to be doing anything for us. So you have to fi- figure out how's it going to impact our business performance. And then the next question is very logical, like, well, how much? You know, so how's it going to impact our business performance? Well, it's, you know, it's going to give us more market share. Well, how much more market share? Because you know, one percent more, half percent more, a thousandth of a percent more is more market share. But how much more market share are we talking about? Well, I don't know. Well, let's find out. I mean, before we go down this road to invest all this time and energy and resources into taking advantage of the opportunity, what can we expect to get out of it? So you you figure out how much, and you say, oh, you know, we think that best case, it could increase our market share 15%. So you say, okay, so the next thing is we got to set a target. So let's say if if best case is 15%, let's say we're going to shoot for 12%. And then you you have to rally the troops. So you've identified the opportunity. You've come up with a creative way to take advantage of it. You know how it's going to impact your business performance. You've set a goal, you know, a target for achieving that level, and now it's time to rally the troops because you can't do it alone. If this is if this is worth the time and energy of the leadership team, then it's going to take more than just the leadership team to pull it off. So you, then you have to enlist the troops. One of the best books I've ever read on this topic is by Jack Stack, and it's called The Great Game of Business. And it's actually about open book management, but the the way that open book management works is that it's very effective for getting everybody on the same page and having everybody shoot toward a common goal. So even companies that aren't ready to take the plunge into full open book management and letting every employee rank and file all the way up to C-suite executive or CEO see the actual financial statements, um, it, the, even the companies who aren't ready for the full Monty, so to speak, of jumping into open book management can benefit from Stack's book because simple things like scoreboards in the work area or scoreboards that are front and center uh, for virtual employees or for office workers or whatever, but something where everybody's looking at the same thing and keeping score. Um, It's going to be valuable for getting people on the same page and getting them motivated again to buy into the idea and the execution of it. So once you've enlisted the troops and you've got this great way to measure it and everybody's excited about it, you have to keep measuring and you have to keep adjusting and you have to hold people accountable. That's the whole, you know, where a lot of this stuff falls off the rails is people will come up with the, they'll find the, they'll, they'll go out and find some opportunity in the market or in the business 
And they may even get creative and find a way to take advantage of it because that's fun. Creativity is fun. They may ask their CFO or somebody who's really good with numbers to break this opportunity down and the particular way they're going to take advantage of it and tell them how it's going to affect business performance. But very few of them will go further than that. Very few of them are going to take the next step and really step out there and put themselves out there and say, okay, team, okay, company, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to keep track of it. Some will. A lot won't, but some will. Of those that will, an even fewer percentage are going to continue to come back to that scorecard day after day, week after week, measure the performance, measure the results, hold them up in front of the company and go, we're making it or we're not making it. Or if we're not making it, what are we going to do to fix it? If one person isn't making it, what are we going to do to train that person? And if they're not trainable or we've given them opportunities, we're going to make a change. A lot of this is about accountability and execution. It's all about accountability and execution. Because one of the points I'm going to hammer home later is that opportunity is literally everywhere. It's literally everywhere. So what makes the difference? It can't be opportunity because there's plenty of opportunity. It's not. What makes the difference is the execution side of it. So what's the, the secret sauce of successful strategy? It's just that execution. An- another good book recommendation I have for you is on execution. It's called The Six Disciplines Execution Revolution. I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. And I won't go a lot into execution. We're going to talk about some of it later and the tips to maintaining focus. But an organization that will get its head out of the creative clouds and really commit to executing is one that's going to make a difference in the market. So all of this stuff boils down to execution. The other other secret sauce ingredient of successful strategy is focus. And we're gonna be talking about focus kind of from a macro level later Um, as far as the organization goes, but that's only as good as the focus of the individuals. And especially on the leadership team, you have to have people who are good at, very efficient and effective at knowing what they're supposed to be doing and actually doing it. One of the best books I've read for that is, is David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, which basically teaches you how to take all of the stuff in your life and get it into a system that you can trust so that on a daily, weekly basis, you always know what you're responsible for. And you can look at those things that you're responsible for and decide which ones are the most important ones at that moment. If you don't have a system, and Stephen Covey also talks about this in his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I believe if you don't have a system, you always revert back to what's urgent. And it may be important, but it may not be important. There's a, there's a greater chance that it's not important than that it is. Because when you think about what are the really important things, especially for the leader of the company, the really important things are, uh, are, are carrying forward the vision to the company. The really important things are developing talent among the leadership team. The really important things are developing the the disciplines and the systems to constantly identify those long-range opportunities that are out there and be ready when the team takes finishes 
kind of milking the, the current opportunity for all it's worth, have that next one waiting in the wings. To always be out there three, four, five years ahead of where the company's going. Those are important things, but none of them are urgent. So if the CEO or the leader of the company, all they ever pay attention to is the urgent, the important hardly ever gets done. Now, you'll hear, well, you know, it's, it's important for me to fly out and meet with our biggest customer because they're our biggest customer. Well, yeah, that is important. That's important today. Is it important in the grand scheme of things? Uh, yeah, it's still important, but is it the most important thing that you can be doing? Usually the reason you're flying out is because something else wasn't done correctly. It's usually putting out fires. And putting out fires is important because you don't want the building to burn down. But it's only important because something that was important didn't get done before. Something not important took its place, and the, the crap hit the fan, and you got called in as the CEO to go put out the fire. So those two books are really, really good, Six Disciplines Execution and David Allen's Getting Things Done. I think you know, for definitely for the CEO, the Six Disciplines book is required reading for I'm not sure that that applies to everybody on the team because it is a more high level. Um, but for everybody on the team, David Allen's book is definitely required reading. I would say David Allen's book, I mean, personally, it should be required reading for everybody in the company. But the people who are really going to sit down and invest in it and get the most out of it are going to be those people who have direct reports. So whether those are line supervisors or whether those are vice presidents or whether those are... Um, C-suite managers, those people, real, they're the busiest people in the company, and they're the ones who are the most likely to get pulled off of the important stuff to tend to the urgent stuff because they're putting out other people's fires. So uh, those books can be really, really good about that. Another one that's really good for those folks who are um, getting pulled into a lot of fires is uh, Henry Cloud's book that's uh, Boundaries for Leaders. That's another excellent book that will help leaders not get sucked into every little thing because leaders are ridiculously in control. It's a, a phrase that Cloud uses quite often. So where are we? Bringing, so execution, focus are, are two things that you have to have to have successful strategies. And then uh, bringing the whole team to bear on one thing. So this is so there's focus where I'm focused on getting my stuff done, and then there's the laser focus of the entire team, getting everybody kind of aligned around one goal. And this is pretty exciting stuff when it starts to happen for the first time. Because in a lot of companies, what you've had for years and years and years, maybe for as long as the company has been around, is a group of very talented people who are each responsible for their own little area of the company. And this plays out sometimes, you know, if things go south in turf wars and, and people protecting their territory, when things are, are going well, there's this competitiveness between departments to, you know, get the accolades and the best performance stuff from the CEO. So you still have, though, this siloed, uh, arrangement where everybody's kind of doing their own thing and they might be doing it well or might be doing it poorly or some of them might be doing well and some of them might not be doing so well 
but they're all kind of doing their own thing and they're just head down. And what they're really doing is maintaining the status quo because the sales department without a, a cohesive strategy and a direction and a kind of a plan to grow and get better and do the next thing, the only thing that the sales department can do is sell better. They can't sell better things. They can't sell to the best people. They can't sell to the greatest opportunity in the market. All they can do is sell and do it you know, to the best of their ability. They can get, to use you know Ron Baker's analogy again, they can get a lot more efficient and so the, in a siloed business, those, those top-performing silos are the most efficient silos, but we're trading efficiency for, we're trading effectiveness for efficiency. So everybody's really efficient, but they're not very effective. So at the end of the day, what we really want to do is bring the entire team together and have that entire team focus all of its energy, all of its intellectual capital on a particular uh, opportunity, taking advantage of that opportunity, executing a strategy that's going to do that. And when you see it happen for the first time and you see those silos start to break down and you get this very, very talented group of people working together on the same thing, it's amazing what happens and how quickly it starts to happen and how fast you can build momentum. And then, you know, life gets in the way and uh, you, they all have their regular responsibilities that they're supposed to do, and fires still crop up. And it's you know you you have setbacks to that momentum, but once you've seen it, you always want to get back to that point. So it, it becomes kind of a new way of living inside the company when you can bring the whole team to bear on one thing. Uh, one of the best books I've read on that subject is Vern Harnish's Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, which we're going to talk about some of the methods that I learned from Harnish. Uh, later when we talk about you know, the actual nuts and bolts of how this works out. So first, before we get there, I want to talk about myths of opportunity. So these are things that I hear all the time. Now, the companies that I work with tend to be um, t 2 to $20 million high-growth businesses. So these are companies that want to grow at 25, 30, 35, 40, sometimes 50%. We had one that grew almost 100% in a year. So they're growing very fast. Um, they're, they're led by typically very dynamic, very accomplished people, entrepreneurs in the truest sense of the word. So, and I talk to a lot more companies than I work with because we don't take every client that comes in the door. So I get to meet a lot of entrepreneurs some of them become clients, some of them we pass on. But I hear this, I hear these myths over and over and over again. So number one, opportunity is scarce. The reason we can't afford to lock ourselves into a strategy is because this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity might come by, and if, if we're not ready to take advantage of it because we're so focused on doing what we said we were going to do at the beginning of the year, then we're going to miss out and we're going to fall behind our competition. And that, that's a myth. I'll, we'll talk about why it's a myth later, but that's just not true. The second myth is it requires an immediate response. So, uh, you know, the opportunity to buy this property, I got to act on this in 24 hours. You're going to set up all these systems and these approval mechanisms and, uh, you know, that's going to limit our ability. We got to be nimble. We got to be able to make split-second decisions. So that's another myth, is that 
opportunity requires an immediate response. A third one, it's what successful entrepreneurs do. That, this is the DNA of a successful op, uh, entrepreneur, is that they are uh, they're hair trigger happy on, on being able to take advantage of opportunities. If you can't pull that hair trigger, then you're going to miss out. You're not a true entrepreneur. And the fourth one is if I, if I miss it, I'll never get another chance. So what's the truth? And, and this has been borne out in my experience, but more importantly, it's borne out in the experiences of, of friends and business owners that I know who are much wiser, much more experienced, and have much bigger businesses than I do. And they'll all tell you the same thing. The truth is that entrepreneurs see opportunity everywhere. It is not scarce at all. And people who say it's scarce really, the first, when if I hear somebody say, I have to be ready to take, take advantage of an opportunity because it may only be once in a lifetime, that, that warning bells go off saying this person is not a true entrepreneur. Now, who cares? I don't, that, that whole word entrepreneur kind of grates me. I think it's way, way, way overused. And here I've used it like 10 times in the last 20 seconds. But the person who thinks that opportunities are scarce is typically not going to do really, really well in business. They're just not. Because they'll see life as a zero-sum game. And that's not how the best and the brightest in business. That's not how really good, really well-accomplished entrepreneurs see the world. It's not a zero-sum game. There, the, the whole idea behind business, the whole idea behind business done well is that it creates value. It literally can create value out of nothing. Um, so there, there's a movie that I'd recommend everybody watch called The Call of the Entrepreneur, and it hits on this exact subject. But entrepreneurs will see opportunity literally everywhere. What you have to do is limit your focus so that you're taking advantage of the opportunities that you have the capacity to really use and make a difference in your business with. So it's not true that it's scarce. It's everywhere. The second truth is that the best opportunities don't find you. You find them. And think about this. It's, it's not the case that very accomplished business people just sit in their office and their phone rings all day long with the next greatest idea. That doesn't, that's not the way it works. Opportunities aren't out there looking for a home. They're hiding in problems. They're hiding in issues that other companies have not been able to solve. They're hiding in the wants and desires of your customers that haven't been told to you, but, but are latent. They're there, and they're real, and they're acute, and they require a solution. The customer just doesn't know that that solution is immensely valuable to them until you provide it. So, the idea that opportunities are kind of floating around out there, and when one comes into my office, I have to stop everything that I'm doing and grab hold of it because it might fly away, is just not true. Opportunities are out there under the rocks and in the crevices and in all the little places that you have to go dig them out of. And the really, really, really good ones are the ones that, that good business owners dig out of the ground for themselves 
and say, this is something that I'm going to take advantage of. I got a great idea for how I can make a difference in the business with this opportunity. Third truth, the best entrepreneurs, the best business owners make quick operational decisions, but they don't make quick strategic decisions. And this is what we're talking about here. When you're, when you're talking about opportunities, and I should back maybe back way up and say that the opportunity to hire uh, a really good person for a specific position that you know that your company is going to grow into, that's not what I'm talking about. That's the kind of stuff that, yeah, you should be able to take advantage of that stuff. But let's say that the opportunity is um, this new CEO has become available, and he has experience in this business line that you just started, but it's under your existing CEO. And so what you're thinking is, well, to take advantage of this opportunity, what, maybe what I should do is split the company in half and let our existing CEO watch over the side of the business that he's always run well, and, and we'll bring in this new guy who has experience in this new area we just started, and we'll put him in charge of that spinoff. Okay, that's, that is a strategic decision. And the best entrepreneurs, the best business owners, are not going to make that decision on a whim. And they're not going to make it without all the data at their fingertips, without their leadership being behind it, without it fitting into what their plans are for the next two, three, four, five years. So, you know, certain opportunities can come along and you'll take a look at them in the course of your overall planning, but you're not going to just decide on an instant, oh, we've got to do this or this guy's going to get away. So there's operational decisions that you should be very quick to take advantage of. That is a, a trait of good business owners, is that they know how to make decisions. And they're not afraid to make decisions. They don't waffle on decisions when those are operational. But when they're strategic, they also don't pull the trigger without knowing what is likely to happen and whether this fits in the grand scheme of things. The fourth truth is that it's another, a numbers game. Um, saying I'll never get another shot is really kind of like putting all of your eggs in one basket. But you're going to get lots of shots. You're going to get lots of shots at opportunity. You have to understand that the opportunities, there are going to be more opportunities than there are time and resources to take advantage of them. So the time and the resources, those are the numbers that you have to play with. So what you have to figure out is of all of these opportunities out here, which ones am I going to select in, and invest my resources and time into to try to make a difference in the business? So understand that you know, it's, it's about selecting the best opportunities. And you're going to get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And it never fails. You know, we get into the strategic planning process, and it's usually the first or second year that we're working with a client on this kind of stuff. And we have a strategic plan, maybe for the first time in the company. We're executing against that plan. We've got the entire leadership team focused on a very specific um, element of that strat strategic plan, a strategy that we're pursuing for that year to take advantage of some opportunity. And something comes up in the second or the third quarter where the business owner goes, 
uh, we we're going to buy this new piece of equipment and build a new division around it. And you go, okay. Um, that has nothing to do with the strategy that we decided on in January. Okay. Uh, well, it kind of does because, you know, we, we talked about this before. Well, yeah, I, know, I remember talking about it. And I remember that we looked at the three or four th opportunities that we had for the, for the year, the next two or three years. And that was, yeah, you're right, that was one of them. But we decided that of those four, this one was like number three or four. And we're really going to invest the team's time in one and two. So what you're saying is you decided to leave the strategic plan and go find this opportunity. And, and that's, that's common. That usually happens. So understanding that it, it, it's the opportunity to buy that equipment is going to be there next year. And it's going to be there the year after and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that. What, I, what I've also found to be the case is a lot of time when these opportunities are presented as you've got to do this now because it's just not going to come back again. Well, the reason that it's there in the first place is because somebody else didn't want it. The reason that it's found you instead of you going to find it is because somebody else didn't want it and they brought it to you and they're trying to sell you on it. So just think about that the next time you're tempted to chase this opportunity that you think is going to get away because if, if I miss it, I'm never going to get another chance. It staggers me that entrepreneurs, business owners, are usually the best salesmen in the company. They've risen up through the ranks as a salesman in the company. But when they're being presented these opportunities, they don't recognize it as the stereotypical bad sales pitch that they should stay away from. And that's ultimately a lot of times what it is. So there's some myths. They're the truths that I think are behind those myths. Um, let's talk about how to stay focused. Because I, and this is really probably the most important part. I, I've laid the foundation for why I think opportunity and focus are at two opposite ends of the spectrum. I think if you identify the opportunity and then you focus your energy on making that opportunity come to life in your business, the two work very well together. But what I see a lot of times is the opportunity, the next opportunity is taking away from focus on the last opportunity. And we wanna keep those things in perspective. So how to stay focused. The number one way that I can help companies stay focused that aren't is to create predictability and rhythm in the company. And this goes back to Vern Harnish's book, uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And he talks about uh, some very concrete methods to build this organizational rhythm and predictability in the company. And the number one way, if you don't do anything else, is the daily huddle. And this is the one that I get the most pushback on. It's definitely the most effective. Like I said, if you're only gonna do one thing, the daily huddle is the thing that you should do to create rhythm in your organization. But it's also the thing that most uh, business owners are the most reluctant, reluctant to put into place. What does a daily huddle look like? It's very simple. It's at a specific time during the day. It happens every single day. And it's typically a small group of people. 
it would usually be a manager and their direct reports. So for a CEO, it's the CEO and the leadership team. And they get together for five to 10 minutes max. And typically you're all standing up. Nobody's allowed to sit down because you want this to have the feel of a huddle. Think of a huddle on the football field. You know, most teams will huddle before every single play. They don't bring out folding chairs and notebooks and sit down and talk about what the next play is going to be. It's very focused on what is about to happen next. And the daily huddle is the same thing. You typically cover three areas in the daily huddle. Each person will spend 20, 30 seconds talking about what they're going to get done in the next 24 hours. Number two, what they got done in the last 24 hours. So you had a huddle yesterday, and they said they were going to get the Simpson project completed and wrapped up and out the door. Did that happen? Um, And the last question is, are you stuck on anything? So what are you going to do the next 24 hours? Did you get done what you said you were going to get done in the last 24 hours, and are you stuck on anything? Now, that last question is very important because it lets the leader of that team know if he needs to jump in and keep the wheels moving in any part of, of the business that his direct reports are responsible for. So there are a few rules about the daily huddle. Uh, you know, there, there can be very simple rules like no sitting down. But one of the biggest rules that's usually kind of hard to get in the hang of is that there, there is no solving of problems in the daily huddle. This is not, this is just information sharing. You're not solving problems. So when the, the CFO says, I'm stuck on this application for our financing round because I really need the management and discussion analysis points from you. The CEO can't say, well, yeah, we've talked about that and I've got, I've got about half of that fleshed out. Uh, why don't you work with my assistant to get the rest of those done? And uh, point that the two things that we haven't talked about yet are the latest hire uh, on the leadership team and the acquisition of the company, you know, in XYZ state. That doesn't happen. If the CFO says, I'm stuck because I need the management discussion analysis points, the CEO says, well... I should have some time this afternoon, get with my assistant and tell her that you need 30 minutes for you and I to sit down and work on that. And done, then you move on to the next person. So there's no discussion. This leads not just to everybody being focused and kind of staying in this rhythm. It leads to, for the leader, it leads to a lot less interruption. And this is this is usually why I recommend it, That that complaint about interruptions from direct reports, um, I tell, when I hear that from my clients, the first thing I tell them is, well, I can fix that. How would you like to trade the 10 interruptions that you get every day for one 15-minute interruption that happens at the same time every day? And they go, "Uh, sounds interesting. I say, well, here's what we need to do. We need to set up a daily meeting with your direct reports where every day, whether you're in the office or not, you have a conversation for 10 to 15 minutes where everybody shares what they were work, what they're going to get done in the next 24 hours, what they got done in the last 24 hours, and if they're stuck on anything. 
And they go, a daily meeting? They're going to have a daily meeting? There's no way we could do a daily We have a hard time doing our, month, our weekly meetings. You know, monthly meetings are a stretch for us. And you want us to do it daily? And I get this pushback. And they won't do it. But they'll continue to get interrupted 10 times a day, which is taking out probably two to three hours of their effectiveness as a leader, rather than give up the 10 to 15 minutes. And there's probably a lot of reasons to that. I think that it's hard for business owners who are in charge and not answerable to anyone but the customer to be answerable to a set time on their calendar every single day when they have to be somewhere and doing something. And like I said, it happens typically whether you're in the office or not. There can be rare exceptions, but I've done it myself and I've had clients do it where if they're in a meeting and the, the appointed time for their daily huddle comes up, they'll excuse themselves from the meeting and just say, can we take a 15-minute break? And they'll excuse themselves from the meeting and they'll go get on a conference call and have their huddle. And sometimes the team is standing back at the office gathered around a conference phone. Sometimes the team is virtual, and this is the way I've done it in the past, where everybody knows that they dial into the same number at the same time every day. Um, and it's very doable. Once you get in the habit of doing it, it's not that big of a deal. It's just getting there. And it makes all of those interruptions go away. The reason it makes the interruptions go away is because if your CFO is sitting in his office at 3 o'clock in the afternoon working on those management discussion and analysis points, and he gets stuck, he's, he may get up from his desk, come to your office, and interrupt you to ask you how to get unstuck. But if he knows that at 9 o'clock the next morning, he's going to have the opportunity to share that he's stuck with you and get some time on your calendar to get unstuck, he'll take those points at 3 o'clock, he'll put them in a folder, and he'll lay them aside and go on to something else. And I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in my business with highly technical work where I had a team of accountants and tax folks coming to me asking questions about specific tax returns or specific business issues with clients they were dealing with. And they would make a list of, they'd stop interrupting me. They would make a list of the things that they were having issues with. And then they would come in and they would sit down and go over them with me uh, once they got some time on my calendar after the daily huddle. So it really does work. So number one thing, if you get nothing else out of how to stay focused, Start the daily huddle because it's really, really, really going to help your performance, especially of your leadership team. The second way to create predictability and rhythm is weekly meetings. And this is, so I'll just tell you where I'm going. Daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual. There's five, five different time periods that you need to be focused on. So the daily, we, we talked about that weekly. You should be getting together with the team weekly to talk about key performance indicators. These are the short-range they might be lagging. Hopefully, they're leading. If you have some leading KPIs, those are ideal, and we may talk about those in another podcast. But if they're lagging, they should be very shortly lagging, like they're just a little bit behind where the actual financial performance is going to hit. And you're, you're talking about these on a weekly basis just so everybody's still focused on the same number. And there, there could be issues that are raised in that, like, 
hey, we've noticed that in this KPI, there's probably a problem with it because it's not being measured correctly. This is the first time we've used this one. The team's still getting used to collecting the data in the right way, or IT's having some trouble pulling it out of the database. It's those kinds of things that you're talking about. They're not major strategic issues like, oh my God, we're not hitting our number. We need to turn the ship around and change this whole thing. It's just, these are the, these are the, the little issues that come up that nobody gets to talk about in the daily huddle. These are the five or the 10 minute operational issues that are coming up with managers um, that need some attention from the team or they need some explanation or they need some input and brainstorming and help to solve. But you can't do that in the daily huddle because that's not what the huddle's for. So that stuff gets saved for the weekly meeting. The weekly meeting, as with all meetings, should run according to an agenda. And ideally, that agenda needs to be published and shared with the participants in advance. The, in some companies, if it's not on the agenda, it doesn't get discussed. Um, in some companies, it's a standing agenda, which is just fine, because everybody knows what they're supposed to come with every single week and what they should be prepared to, to share. But an agenda will make this much more effective, and it'll keep the one-hour weekly meeting from turning into a three-hour weekly ordeal. Monthly, you should be getting together with the team to review financial information. So as soon as the books are closed, the team gathers, you look at the financial results, you look at the operational results, and you discuss how those are fitting with your expectations, your budgets, and your forecasts. And that monthly meeting is usually, you know, if the weekly meeting is an hour, the monthly meeting might be a couple hours, three hours. Quarterly or triannual. And I do, I like triannual because uh, none of the companies that I work with are compelled to report quarterly numbers. Um, and if we're meeting quarterly, a lot of times the quarterly numbers won't, won't be enough time to get those released yet. But if we meet every four months instead of every three months, we can usually get the same thing accomplished. And we've got more time to digest quarterly information. So... When, uh, when you meet for these quarterly or triennial strategy updates, you're typically talking about the big projects, the major areas of focus that the team is going to work on for the next three to four months. So the monthly will update you on how the team is performing on those projects. The quarterly is to set the stage for the next quarter and what that team's going to be focused on. Are we going to continue working on this thing, this nut that we couldn't crack from last quarter, or we solved that and everything's looking good, we're going to move on to the next thing. And then once a year, you have a strategy review session and, and set your goals and the, measurement, the, the objective measurements you're going to use to decide whether you're making progress against your strategic plan. That annual meeting is a half day to a full day for most companies. Some companies will stretch it out to two days and do some leadership training in there. I don't think it's necessary in most small companies. I think you should be doing that training on an ongoing basis, even hiring somebody to come in and help with that training. But at a minimum, you should be getting together for a half day to a day to look at the past year. What were our goals for this past year? Did we hit them? Or Usually this is happening in... Um, the last part of the year and you know you've got a couple weeks left and you go are we going to hit the goals that we've set yes or no if yes that's great did we did we stretch enough what did we learn over that 
time frame. If we didn't hit the goals, why didn't we hit them? Is it because we weren't realistic? Did something shift under our feet? We, we weren't able to react and respond to it. What was it? What happened last year? And you'll spend a good amount of time talking about those results. You want to spend the bulk of the time, though, maybe a third devoted to what happened in the past and two-thirds of the time devoted to what are we going to do this next year? Okay, what's our next big target? Our, and this is also the time when you get to review strategies. So the rule with my clients is that they only get to review strategies once a year. They, they cannot question whether we're going to pursue um, an acquisition strategy of key competitors in the second quarter. That's off the table. We decided that we're going to pursue, pursue an acquisition strategy uh, at the beginning of the year, and that should, should have been a very well-considered, beat-up, kicked-around, shot holes in it to decide if that was the right strategy to pursue. We didn't decide that acquisition was going to be the strategy we were going to pursue on a whim. We, we looked at it. We looked at the amount of time it was going to take. We looked at who was going to have to be involved, and we said, for the next year, we're going to be focused on an acquisition strategy, and we're going to work that strategy. So in the second quarter, when somebody goes, I'm not sure that this acquisition thing is the right thing that we should be doing. No, we already decided that's what we should be doing. Unless there is hard, hard evidence that we're digging ourselves a hole, we're not going to lift off the accelerator. And the reason is it could take six weeks just for people to understand the scope of the strategy once they get into the actual execution of it and find out that what I thought was a four-week project is actually a 12-week project. Um, but on the other hand, what I thought was going to cost $100,000, we found this resource that can do it for 10. You know, so there's a lot of stuff in the first six to eight weeks of working out a brand new strategy where it's just education. You're getting your feet under you and you're really starting to, you're wading in and understanding what's really going on. You saw it from afar. Now that you're in the mix, you're starting to learn some different things about it. When that six to eight weeks is up, you actually start to hit your stride in execution and you start to actually accomplish things. Well, it could take another three to four months for that execution momentum to build up where things are actually happening. Well, now we could be seven, eight months in before we actually have you know, the flywheel spinning, so to speak, fast enough to start getting the results that we expect. That's why we don't let people question strategies for the entire year. We beat the strategies up six ways from Sunday in that annual planning meeting. And we really try to get everybody's buy-in that this is the strategy we want to pursue wholeheartedly. Because listen, we're not going to question this for the next year. And then at the next annual retreat, um, one of the things that we do when we're looking forward to what are we going to accomplish in this next year is we do get to put that strategy on the table and go, hey, look, for the last year we pursued acquisition. Um, is that what we want to do for the next year? Or have we gotten what we're going to get out of that? Uh, do, maybe we decide the flywheel never got spinning fast enough, and it's not going to be as effective as we thought it was going to be in the long term. So let's shift. If it's not acquisition, what is it? So spend a, an annual meeting, spend a third of, of it talking about past results, two-thirds talking about the future, and put the strategies on the table for discussion.
So creating predictability and rhythm in the organization is a great way to stay focused. And that predictability and rhythm at the backbone of, of it is those daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual get-togethers where you're bringing the team together and you're getting focused on what the company's trying to achieve. The second way that you can to, the second way that you can really kind of build a discipline of staying focused is to enlist a council of advisors. You know, a board of directors. One of the reasons public companies uh, are better at strategic planning is because they have a board of directors that's not involved in operations that helps hold the management team accountable to the strategic plans that the CEO committed to at the last board meeting or at the last board retreat. Small businesses usually don't have a council of advisors. It's the owner and maybe the owner's wife who are talking about the big decisions that go on. And, or maybe it's hired help, like a consultant or an attorney or a business coach or something like that. Well, I'm one of those people who gets paid. And I'll tell you, I'm no substitute for a council of peer advisors. I can help you uh, evaluate strategies. I can help you... Uh, architect strategies, I can help you execute against those strategies. But sometimes, a, a lot of times, you need a council of advisors who's not going to hold you accountable because they're getting paid. They're going to hold you accountable because they care about you and they care about your business and you've asked them to be involved. And it's easy to stop paying me and make the accountability go away. It's very difficult to take them out of the equation and make the accountability go away because you've asked for it and they know you. They know you personally. They know your family. They're doing what's best for you and they're not going to let you off the hook that easy. There's, um, you know, I experienced a, a really good example of this with a friend of mine who, who had a potential equity partner come to him and say, here's what we would like to do with your business. We really see a lot of potential and promise in it. And we, we want to come in alongside of you, be partners, and take it to the next level. And he said, uh, okay, this, this all sounds great. I'm super excited about it. It, it. it makes a lot of sense to me. I'm starting to see things that I hadn't seen before. But I can tell you, before I do anything, I'm going to take it to my council of advisors. And then for him, that was a C12 group that I happened to be a part of. And groups like C12 are very, very valuable in creating that group that you can take things to and they will give you their honest opinion after considering the facts, after considering the case that you've laid out, and they'll tell you, you should not do this or you absolutely should do this. Not only should you do it, if you don't do it, you're, you're going to be doing the wrong thing. So a council of advisors... It can really help you with that. You, you need to make a commitment to enlist the group for anything that isn't in the plan. So you tell the group, you, you, sometimes you'll need to say, hey, this is our plan for the year. And I commit to you to bring anything in here that isn't in this plan. And if I'm going to deviate from this plan, I want you to hold me accountable. So I agree to bring anything that's a deviation to you. And if you say that it's okay to deviate, then I'll know that I'm getting good counsel and, and I'm, I'm safe in doing that. But um, any deviation, I, I need to be able to tell whoever's asking me to make that deviation or to be able to tell myself if it's an opportunity I've found that I'm not going to go down that path until I sit down with my counsel advisors.
The other thing that you can do is if in between your council advisors and just doing it, you also have a leadership team. And you can ask your leadership team to check you on whether an opportunity is within or outside the strategic plan boundaries. Because there's a lot of rationalization that goes on when you see an opportunity out there. And you go, you might talk yourself into it being part of the strategy that you've already committed to. But anybody else who looks at it goes, that's not, that's not part of the strategy we agreed to. That's something completely different. So one of the things that often works well, because business owners are pretty good at convincing themselves of this kind of stuff, is you say, um, maybe I'm not going to go to the leadership team like I would a council of advisors and say, hey, look, whatever I'm looking to do, I'm going to ask your advice beforehand. But you could say, I'm going to go to my leadership team anytime I see an opportunity that, that maybe I think is within the bounds of the strategy, and I'm going to lay out the facts for them, and they're going to, I'll defer to their judgment about whether it's within or outside the strategic plan boundaries. And if it's not, if they all go, no, you're crazy, that's not part of the strategic, it, yeah, it looks like a good opportunity, but it's not what we've been talking about doing. Well, then you take it to your council of advisors and you go, look, guys, this opportunity has come up and my leadership team says that it's not part of anything that we're currently doing. I kind of thought that it, it might fit within the current strategic framework that we have going this year, but they say, no, it's not. So this would be something new. I still think it's a valid opportunity. I'd like to deviate from our strategic plan to take advantage of it. Is this a good idea or am I just not being focused? So that's another idea. The Another uh, good, good tip to, on how to stay focused goes to something more fundamental and encouraging healthy debate among your team. If your team feels comfortable giving you their honest, um, considered opinion, then you're going to get much better counsel around sticking to the strategic plan. You're going to get much better focus on the strategic plan. And the thing that a lot of business owners need to understand is that their team is not built like they were. The business owner is constantly kicking over rocks looking for opportunities. The team is not. Most of the time, the team just wants to come in and be able to get their work done to the best of their ability. They like the predictability of what they're being asked to do. When you set up a strategic plan that says for the next year, we're going to be doing this and this and this and this, they get really excited because they're like, ha, for the next year, I get to focus on making a difference in this area. That's exciting. I can't wait because I know what I'm doing. I know what I've got to work on for the next year. Then you come in with your, your next you know, great idea and they're like, oh, I thought we were doing this and now I got to shift gears and do that. And when I interview team members, leadership team members, this is the most common complaint among dynamic growing companies is that every two months he comes in here and he drops a new thing in my lap. Or every time she goes to another conference, she comes back with this thing that is the next greatest thing that we have to work on. And we just, we're always going from thing to thing to thing to thing. And I feel like a ping pong ball. I never know what I'm supposed to be focused on. I, yeah, I have my day job, but 
you know, I, I really want to be contributing to where this company is going, but it's always changing. We never have any idea. So if you will encourage healthy debate among your team, they'll give you that feedback. You'll come back from the conference and they'll go, look, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And this sounds like it was a great experience for you, but we have a strategic plan. We have something that we're supposed to be focused on. And I'm just not sure dropping everything to go explore this conference idea is the best, the best way to go. And that little bit of pushback to the business owner is invaluable because a smart business owner will realize the courage and the commitment to the company that that took, and they'll take notice and st- take a step back and go, yeah, maybe I am kind of switching gears here and I'm, I'm getting distracted. I'm not staying focused. So how do you build report? Well, you, you need to ask for opinions only when you're going to listen to them. So if, if something has come up and you know exactly what you're going to do and there is no other alternative way, do not ask for anybody's opinion on the leadership team because you don't want their opinion. And worse, you might get an opinion that's contrary to yours and you're going to have to face the fact that you're going to ignore that person's advice. You're going to step all over their opinion. And it wasn't necessary because you already knew what you're going to do. So only ask for opinions when you're going to listen to them, when you need the advice, when you need the counsel, and, you're, and you really could go either way. That's when you need to start asking for opinions. The, um, the next thing I'd say is you need to be a role model for asking for and accepting constructive criticism. So when, uh, when you have an opportunity to ask one of your direct reports, how did we do in this area? How did we execute? Or how did I lead that function or that event or that initiative? And they step out of their comfort zone and they go, well, you know, nine out of 10 of the things went really, really well, but there's one that I think is gonna make a difference and it's not good. You need to be a role model in accepting that constructive criticism. And if you can do that frequently enough, then you'll get to the point where you can offer the constructive criticism without it being taken personally because they're gonna watch your response and they'll model their response after yours. So if you fly off the handle and say, I can't, you guys are completely off base. I just can't understand why our, our view of things is so much different. You clearly weren't paying attention to what was going on. Then the next time you confront them with something, don't be surprised if they're in denial about it because they learned it from you. But if you eat the humble pie and you go, I never thought about it that way. I'm gonna have to go back and think about that. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. The next time you call them on the carpet, don't be surprised if you hear, I really need to go think about that. I mean, literally, they'll start to use the same words that you use. So model you know, what you want to see on the team. The, the, second, or the, the last thing I'll say about this whole area of building rapport among your, your team is something that I learned from parenting. So I was in a parenting class one time and they're talking about, you know, the parent who says, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't 
stop what you're doing. We're going to leave right now. You know, whether you're in a restaurant or you're at a store or you're, you know, doing what your birthday party, you know, if you don't stop misbehaving, we're going to go home right now. Well, the kid doesn't stop misbehaving because the kid knows you're not going to go home right now. I mean, they're not stupid. You've been to 100 birthday parties, and they've misbehaved, and you've made the threat, and you've never left. You've been to dozens of shopping malls, um, and they've gotten threat, and you've never left. So they don't stop misbehaving. So what this parenting class said is you've got to just set the stage and pick a morning to go to the mall knowing that within 10 minutes of getting there, you're going to turn right around and you're going to come home. And you're not going to get any shopping done. And you're not going to get anything accomplished except teaching your child that you will turn around and go home. So how this works in business is that you can set the stage for, um, for a decision that you know the leadership team is going to make in the right direction. So you can say... Um, trying to think of an example, but you can say, um, guys, I know acquisition was, was not part of the strategy that we said we were going to pursue this, this year, but this opportunity has come up and, um, I'm just wondering what you guys think about it. And I want your honest opinions. I really don't, you know, Tell me what you think. I'm not going to tell you what I think. Tell me what you think. And whatever you guys decide is what I'm going to do. Now, if it were me, uh, I would, if it was what I was trying to do here is build consensus around staying on the strategy, the decision I would want them to reach is not taking the acquisition. And so I might stack the deck to make the acquisition look very, very, very unfavorable to us to the point where they were maybe looking at me going, are you freaking crazy? There's no way we should buy this company. But I'm trying to stack the deck because I know the direction I want them to go. And, and because I'm committing myself to doing whatever they're going to say. So I really want to make sure that they kind of go in the direction that I, I, I want them to go. And then they come back at me and they say, you know what, we, um, we don't think you should do this. And you go, okay, since you guys said it, we're not going to do it. And that, you know, enough of those will build, you don't have to do that a lot, but one significant, um, you know, deferral to their judgment in an area like that can do go a long ways toward building rapport with the entire team. The last piece that I want to share about how, how to stay focused is, is kind of philosophical, maybe a little bit evangelical, but uh, from a business sense anyway. But if, what I'll say is that if there's no vision, then there's not going to be any filter for opportunities. Now, we haven't really talked about vision. We talked about strategy, which strategy is what comes after the vision is set. So the vision is where do we want this company to go? The strategy is how are we going to get it there? So Sometimes the reason that there's such a lack of focus and this addiction to every opportunity that comes along is because there's no real cohesive vision that's been shared with the masses. You have been preaching your passion about what you want this company to become 
and how you want to conquer the world through what you're doing. And as a result, people are just kind of plodding along day by day, and they have no litmus test for looking at the opportunities that you're constantly bringing to the table and deciding whether those have a good chance of getting them closer to the vision. So, and, and leaders are, you know, it might sound like I'm talking about the leadership team here when I say there's no litmus test for evaluating the opportunities you're bringing to them, but I'm not really. What this is about is about the business owner. The lack of focus starts with the leadership, the, and the, the premier leader is the owner of the company. So if there's a lack of focus and there's this constant chasing after opportunities, a lot of times it's because the leader does not have a good vision. They have not completely bought into it. So the question that I would ask myself, if you think you're one of these people who constantly is chasing different opportunities, is do you really, really, really know what you want to accomplish? What's your vision for what's going to happen with this company? What do you want it to do in the world? What difference do you want it to make? A strategy is just a way to make that vision attainable. And distraction is always going to make the strategy ineffective. So if you believe in the vision, then you really, really, really pay attention to the strategy because that's how you're going to make the vision happen. If the vision is important to you, if it's the most important thing in the business to you, then the strategy is also going to be the most important thing in the business to you because that's the way you believe you're going to make that vision a reality in the world. So if you believe in the vision, you're going to sell out to the strategy. You have to believe in it, like I said, evangelistically. You have to preach this stuff to anybody and everybody that will listen. And this is where business owners get into trouble who haven't done a lot of strategic planning. They, uh, the first step before we'll do anything strategic planning-wise with a business owner is understand what their vision is. And so they will think and ponder and maybe work with us to flesh out this vision. Um, but if it's the first time, I mean, it may take a little while. It may take a couple of years. It could take a lot longer than that for them to really buy into the vision. But let's just say that they, they get bought into the vision. Maybe it's a vision they've always had and we just come along and help them articulate it. And then we move right into strategy. And so we start talking about the strategies, and they think the strategies are good, and maybe we pick out two, two predominant strategies we're going to pursue for the next couple of years to make this vision get closer to reality. And they, they think they're pretty good, but there's a little bit of doubt. They're not quite sure. They're not quite sure if these are the two strategies that they really want to hitch their wagon to. And what I would tell those business owners and what I tell my clients, if I'm lucky enough to sense this, and I'm getting better at it, if I can tell that they're like 90% in, we, we stop. And in some cases, we go back to square one. You have, if you can't believe 100% in the strategy's ability to make that vision happen, then don't buy in at all. Because if you can't be 100% committed to the strategy, that's where opportunity is going to weasel its way in and try to distract you. 
But if you are so totally committed to the strategy that you say, we are all in on this strategy. We're not going to do anything else for the next year because we really think that this is the one that has the ability to make the biggest difference. Then the opportunities that have the potential to be distracting are not going to have a big effect on you. So take a step back. Number one, do you have a vision for the company? Is it compelling? Is it exciting? Does it get you out of bed in the morning? Does it get your employees out of bed in the morning? Is it fire up your team? Is it something that all of you can really be proud of when you're sharing this stuff with friends and family at holidays and cocktail parties or whatever? Is it something that you really believe in? And if it is, have you spent the time to know that you have the best strategy possible, something that you can also completely sell out to and put all of your faith and effort and energy behind to make that strategy happen. Because a lot of times, the companies that have done strategic planning and still have a hard time staying focused, sometimes, a lot of times, it comes down to the fact that they're 95% bought into the strategy. But 5% of them's going, I don't really know if this is gonna work, okay? You know, guess what? We don't really know if it's gonna work either, but we do know that the people who make it successful, they may not know that it's gonna, they not, may not be 100% sure it's going to work, but they're 100% sure that it's the best option they have and it's the one that they're going to buy into. So, it, like I said, some of that stuff can get a little uh, evangelistic at times, but, you know, what's business if you can't really care about it? And we all have this belief, at least I do. I really believe passionately that business has this incredible ability to affect change in the world. It's the most creative um, difference maker that I've ever encountered. And I love art and I love science, but when it comes to making uh, effective change happen in the world, I think business hands down affects the most amount of people in the most dramatic ways possible. So if that's what you believe, then this stuff becomes really, really important. And it's more than just an exercise you go through. It's really a way that you start to live and a way you start to run your company. So until next time, this is Joey Brandon. Thanks for listening to the Axiom Podcast.